to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight in the podcast, we're talking about Canadians and remote work. Also, things that negatively impact your immune system. Some of those might surprise you. And a tribute to a music icon and activist. Plus, this week, we learned that an A-plus young athlete suffered a cardiac arrest. And we're talking about that with Dr. John Beisler. Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. As we look back on the pandemic, there were a lot of challenges, lots of struggles, but there were a few benefits, at least according to the younger generation. Joining me on the line is Mario Conseco. He's the president at Research Co., a columnist at Business in Vancouver as well. And we're going to talk about how remote work is now a mandatory office option for a younger generation. Good evening, Mario. How are you? Good evening, Maureen. Great. Great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. You know, I got to say, I love remote work. I do a fair bit of it myself. Uh, You know, it took a little bit of getting used to, but one of the benefits, I think, is, you know, real estate, for those people fortunate enough to own a home, is so expensive, or those who are able to rent at the high prices, they're now able to stay in their home and do their work and maybe enjoy their homes a little bit more, not to mention commute times and gas and parking fees. Many people enjoy working at home. But tell me about this recent survey that you did. Well, we've been tracking perceptions on work from home ever since the pandemic began, and we could clearly see a generational divide. Uh, Let's say Generation X, uh, very happy with the situation. Maybe they have a kid at home that they could take care of. Uh, The over 55s, not particularly thrilled with this, really looking forward to being out of their house. But the 18 to 34-year-old demographic, they really embraced uh, working from home. They were very happy with the fact that they could do the laundry and do other things. There were a a few concerns at the start about having all the software and hardware necessary to do their jobs. And now that the pandemic is almost behind us, we have this group of younger British Colombians who are saying, I enjoy working from home. I will switch jobs if I can have a job where I can work from home more often than I do. And actually, uh, 39% of them who have already quit jobs because after COVID-19 was over, they said, I want to keep working from home. And their employer said, not so fast. And they said, well, I'm just going to find somebody else who will pay me to work from home. So so you mentioned the laundry, and that's a great added benefit, uh, may I say, especially for women. Although I'm sure a lot of men <laughs> do the laundry in the home as well. Um, what are some of the other benefits? I know that uh, some people who are working from home, they can t- walk the dog, resulting in another cost savings for people who previously maybe were commuting downtown. Um, they can also go for a run or go to the gym. They can save money because they're eating at home instead of um, going out to eat. What are some of the other benefits that um, came out of this research study? One of the things that is really crucial, and we've seen this consistently since we started asking, is the benefit of choosing the moment when you're going to be doing things and the time that you're not spending getting ready for stuff, uh, having to go to a meeting at a a specific office. You know, we became very great at looking great from the waist ups, if if, if we could say it like that. You know, just show up decent at your Zoom meeting, make sure that everything works well, and time management 
is something that the younger generation has become great at. Okay, maybe I can work from 6 to 8 p.m. I don't need to be at the office punching the clock. I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my time. And this is the reason why this generation is so upset with the notion of having to go back to the office. They weren't fired. They were happy with the situation that they had. Their bosses were happy with the work that they were giving at the time. So they don't see a reason to change this necessarily and go back to the way life was in 2019. Let's talk about the bosses or more so the owners of the expensive offices downtown that they may have leased for four or five years or 10 years at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, Is that the reason that the bosses, the companies want people to come back into the office? It's definitely connected to it. You know, we've seen over the past few months uh, a significant amount of subleases happening because businesses no longer need that many desks around. And it's been complicated to try to hold on to those places and to try to change it. This is happening particularly with the tech companies. You know, if you have everybody working from home and they have the software and hardware that they require, you don't need to have them housed in the same space. And this is going to be a monumental challenge for human resources people, uh, particularly because we're coming off an era where it was all about the company culture as it related to the office itself. You know, we were talking about places where you could have beer on Thursdays and yoga on Fridays and a lot of other amenities that were there. And the younger generation that used to love these things is now more likely to say, that's fine, but I'd rather work from home more often than I would. And this is going to change the way in which you're going to be marketing some of these positions. So a lot of what we see here is the emphasis on the company culture and the camaraderie that the office would bring. But the younger worker is saying, nah, I just want to show up at the office once or twice a week, and that's fine. Right. And and going into that office, the other issue that I think a lot of people don't talk about is, you know, working closely with somebody, having annoying colleagues or coworkers, having to go to particular meetings or events associated with the office. People are enjoying all of that, <laughs> not being forced to hang out with their colleagues or coworkers. What do you, what are the thoughts on that? You know, one, one of the things that we've seen here is a significant generational divide. Uh, the over 55 to a lesser extent generation X more likely to say, I want to have that opportunity to commute. I want to go to the office. I want to talk to people and, 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 essentially have a chance to chat about the issues of the day or whatever you watched on television, the results of the sports, whatever it was. Uh, The younger crowd has gotten more used to getting that out of their system fairly quickly, and they're not looking forward to that type of uh, camaraderie when it comes to the office. So it's a very delicate divide, and, and it really speaks about the way in which cities need to change. If you have a younger generation that is growing more fond of working from home, What does that mean for transportation? What does that mean for places where you can have lunch? It's going to be a a, a very uh, interesting challenge for the cities of the future to try to define something like this when we're at a stage where you have all of these places that are subleasing and few companies that are saying, I want that space because I desperately need people to get back into the office and outside of their kitchen tables. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I saw on Glassdoor recently, I was looking at a company and and a lot of the people, and it's a young workforce, and they were saying not enough remote work was one of the most common uh, cons in terms of um, this particular company. And, you know, so some people are forced to go back to work and then they 
may not want to, are they leaving the workforce or, or are they leaving that job? We have seen that consistently over the past year, particularly with the younger crowd. Uh, they're more likely to say, I'm going to look for a different uh, line of work or a different job that I can perform from my home, even if I'm reporting to a company that isn't even headquartered in the city where I live. Uh, they're more likely to be considering this option because they know that it's something that can work. And we just don't see the same situation with the 35 to 54 year olds or the 55 and overs. They're not going to quit a job if they are not going to be allowed to work from home as often as they want to. But we need to think about this in terms of what it means for the next 10 or 20 years. You're going to have a generation that grew working from home and having the opportunity to do things. Uh, and it's going to be tough for them to uh, essentially have the same uh, way of doing things that we see right now from Generation X or baby boomers. Absolutely. I mean, a lot is going to change and, you know, the offerings are going to be different. And probably the first one, I have to say, if I see on Indeed something or a job is sent to me, I do a lot of contract work. If they say hybrid or remote work, you know, I'm very interested. <laughs> My um, interest is peaked. But, you know, full time going in five days a week certainly does not appeal to me. And it sounds like from your recent survey, it doesn't appeal to a lot of people as well. And it used to be those benefits were nap room, basketball, yeah. climbing wall. But people can do all of that in their own homes. Well, that is the thing that has changed dramatically over the past year. Uh, no longer the emphasis on, on what you can get out of the office, because if you're at home, you're going to be in full control of everything. And the attitude that we have from a lot of these younger workers is, I wasn't fired. I was able to do whatever I wanted during the pandemic. I was there for the meetings where they needed me. I, I met all my deadlines. I did all the work that I was asked to do. I just don't see the need for us to go back to the way things were. And this is going to be complicated for businesses because you cannot have a one-size-fits-all solution. And this is a challenge for human resources departments. Somebody might want to go to the office once a week and somebody might want to go four times a week. You need to figure out to make sure that they feel welcome. Otherwise, they're going to look elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. If you want my vote, it's uh, remote or hybrid work. I'm not sure if you're interested in my vote, Mario, but uh, yeah, nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd also like to say a lot of bullying happens. This is for another segment, another show, but yeah. a lot of bullying happens in those workplaces. And I imagine that will have been reduced as well. Another benefit of the pandemic. Mario Canseco, thank you so much for joining me, President at Research Co. and columnist at Business in Vancouver. Really appreciate your time, Mario. My pleasure, Maureen. Anytime. Sad news this week. We lost a music icon and activist. She said she was never meant to be a pop star, rather a protest singer. Her son died by suicide at the tender age of 17. And I don't think any mother can ever be the same after something like that. Sinead O'Connor died unexpectedly this week and the world mourns. You remember her. She infamously tore up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live in the 90s, a decade before that sexual assault scandal would come to light. It would derail her career at the time, but she did go on to continue to make music, protest, and win awards, the latest being the RTA Music Award. She happily yelled out insults as she drove by the Pentagon. She was self-righteous. She spoke up. She was courageous and just a beautiful human inside and out. 
She also spoke publicly of her mental health struggles, specifically a complex PTSD from things that happened to her in her childhood. She was born into a Roman Catholic family in Dublin, in Ireland. Uh, Her parents were divorced, and Sinead was sent to live with her mother. Sinead alleges that her mother regularly abused you. And in People Magazine, an interview in People Magazine in 2012, she said, and I quote, it was physical violence perpetrated particularly in a sexual manner. You would imagine somebody would struggle lifelong after something like that. And also even pass that trauma on to uh, her children in, in a way, not, not, in, not to say that she's doing the same thing, but in a way that her hurt and her, um, the trauma that occurred to her would of course, um, be felt by her and be seen by others as well. Yet she still stood up for people. She shared her own stories. And when you share your stories, you do nothing but help other people. She was so brave and so incredible and quite the music talent. Jane Fonda said she once heard Sinead O'Connor sing acapella in an empty church in Ireland, and she had never heard something so beautiful. She dated the musician Peter Gabriel, who also wrote a tribute to her on Twitter, or shall I call it X. But to me, it felt phony, so I don't want to read it, because he was, although he said he was in a relationship with her, all, all he said was he was happy to have worked with her. But as someone else on Twitter, or shall I say X, tweeted, or shall I say X'd, I can't help but notice the tributes from other women about Sinead O'Connor. They really speak to her strength. She also said some unflattering things about you, Peter Gabriel, as a big star and feeling like a sexual conquest. Anyway, yes, I'd love to hear from Peter Gabriel about that as well. I mean, it's really, you know, to lose somebody like that, who's only appreciated almost after they have gone, if you will, because, I mean, I think many people adored her and loved her and appreciated everything that she did for the world. It's not until we lose somebody like that, that we realize, oh my gosh, you know, we need more people like Sinead O'Connor, but Sinead O'Connor, unfortunately, has left us far too soon. Uh, She was just a brilliant musician, the voice of an angel. She would play the guitar on her steps of her school in her teenage years. Um, She was irreverent. She was wonderful. She was calm and peaceful as well. People shared so many stories about what a lovely person she was inside and out. And I'm sure she was, but she was hurt. She was like an injured bird almost um, who continued to sing. I loved what Annie Lennox wrote about her on X. (laughs) That's another story this week. Twitter is now X. Imagine being a bird and getting fired. Anyway, Annie Lennox wrote, Sinead, you bared your soul, shared your brilliance through exquisite artistry, your incredible voice, fierce and fragile, lioness and lamb, sweet singing bird, keenly tuned, trembling, tiptoeing along the high wire, or stamping the ground, raw, wounded, fearless. That is exactly what Sinead O'Connor was. She just wanted people to listen to her through her music because that is how she expressed herself. And she 
wanted to help other people, which is such a beautiful thing. But she was a wounded bird who continued to sing. And she was outraged at, at so much. And of course, we learned so much about the Catholic Church and the abuse allegations that went on in the Catholic Church after she had exposed them. But, you know, people sent her death threats after that. Um, people didn't, they, they literally crushed her albums on the streets of New York City. Um, literally took a bulldozer to her songs. But um, she was so talented, um, singing so many amazing songs. This is a rebel song. She did breakup songs when she broke up with Peter Gabriel, Drink Before the War, and of course, Nothing Compares to You, and Nothing Does Compare to You. Uh, her family is requesting privacy at this time. Of course, they must be heartbroken. Uh, the tributes have been pouring in. And um, anyway, I don't think the world will be the same without Sinead O'Connor in it. But I hope people take a lot of lessons from her work and her music and her courage and her strength. She was just an amazing person. What are your memories about Sinead O'Connor? Was there a particular song that you loved as well? Anyway, I hope that Sinead O'Connor is at peace and that she is with her beautiful son. And I'm so grateful that she shared her soul with us and her music. And she soothed us through that incredible voice of an angel that she had. Um, anyway, it's a, it's quite a loss and, you know, she was haunted all of her life yet continued to actually demonstrate what a talent she was and what an award-winning talent that she was just, just an amazing human being. And, um, you know, someone who becomes famous because of her troubled life as her music, and um, anyway, we will miss her. The world will miss her. And But we have learned a lot from her. I think she's contributed so much more than many other people have contributed to the world. Sometimes it wasn't easy. It was often raw. And it was often controversial. Anyway, Sinead O'Connor, rest in peace. Nothing compares to you. He's all about compassion, dedication, and extraordinary care. He's an experienced general cardiologist in private practice and the head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital and the North Shore Heart Center. He is none other than Dr. John Weisler. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Thanks so much for joining me on the line. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm so glad you could come on the show because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering about Bronnie LeJames. LeBron James's son. LeBron James, of course, is the top scorer in the NBA history, and um, his son suffered a cardiac arrest on the court on uh, a few days ago, uh, on Thursday, I believe it was. Um, so he's a young athlete, star athlete. Um, what's up with somebody this young having a cardiac arrest, and what does it mean? Yeah, so it's uh, it's uh, you know a scary thing to have happen, and you know it, it's rare in athletes, uh, of course, fortunately, but um, terrible when it happens. So, um, a cardiac arrest is when your heart stops pumping effectively, and so it's it's actually caused by the heart electrically being abnormal, and it it at the electrical level it doesn't stop, but it becomes chaotically fast, 
so there's two rhythms, ventricular fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia. So your heart goes really, really fast, and when it does that, it's unable to effectively you know, squeeze and pump and push blood to your body. Um, so there's a, you know, a, and so there's a variety of reasons, you know, why it can happen. A cardiac arrest is not the same as a heart attack. A, a heart attack is something uh, where your arteries, where the blood flow to your heart gets interrupted because the artery gets blocked. So blood flow gets interrupted, and then that can make your heart sometimes go dangerously out of rhythm. Uh, for younger patients like Brani, heart attacks are pretty unlikely. Usually the arteries are healthy, uh, not impossible, but very rare. So then, then you look at other, there's other reasons why it might have happened. You know, I don't know, just speculation, um, you know, uh, conditions that we look for. You can get abnormalities of the heart muscle that maybe you're born with. So there's one called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where your muscle's too thick. Um, other genetic things where the, um, the actual electrical cells of your heart don't quite work properly and under the stress of exercise, they can produce abnormal rhythms. Um, so there's there's a sort of constellation of different conditions that are all quite rare that we look for when this happens. Um, so right now we don't know why it happened, but fortunately he you know he was treated promptly. He had good CPR, and I understand he was defibrillated and then taken to hospital quickly. And so far seems to be recovering well. Wow. And so this sort of cardiac arrest happens suddenly. Are there any warning signs? So, so not always. Um, I, I do uh, screening. Uh, as you know, I work for some of the professional sports teams in town, and we do screen players with tests, but we're looking for um, you know, abnormalities that people don't feel. So we do an ECG, and sometimes we do an ultrasound of the heart. And that sometimes helps to find things that people didn't know they had. Again, these conditions are all rare, so they're, they're hard to find. Um, and so it's very important to look for symptoms. Sometimes you do get them. You can get chest pain, uh, trouble breathing, feeling your heart race, and some people will notice that when they're exercising. So, again, cardiac arrest is rare, so those symptoms can be other things. Uh, but it's it's worth getting them checked out if you notice something. Um, but sometimes there are no warning signs. It's quite rare, but that's why, um, you know, it's important to have a good safety plan, access to defibrillation, things like that. You have a plan in place just in case that ever does happen. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, it's an electrical malfunction that causes the heart to stop beating effectively, basically. And, and so the heart cannot supply blood to the body and the brain. And so this is extremely dangerous. Um, and so say somebody passes out, I mean, it is time of the essence here in terms of uh, good outcome and recovery. Definitely. So yeah, that's that's the most you know critical factor. And and it sounds like you know Brani had really rapid attention. Um, it only takes a few minutes of the blood flow being interrupted to your brain for you to start having brain damage. So that's the the biggest fear. You want to restart the heart quickly. Obviously, it's good to have the heart working, but then also to minimize damage to the brain and other organs. So you sort of have like a, a window of a few minutes, and the sooner the better. So um, when somebody appears to be unconscious at a sporting event, you know, it's always it's important to check on them, make sure they're conscious and awake and talking. And then, you know, if they're unconscious, it doesn't automatically mean cardiac arrest, but then you should next check for a pulse to, to make sure. People can black out for other reasons. They can you know, they can just have low blood pressure, and so they black out quickly, they're awake right away. That's not a cardiac arrest, that's less serious. Um, but if the person is not responsive, um, when you check on them, it's important to check for a pulse, and you have to, you know, call for 911, call for help, 
and then start something like CPR and get the defibrillator if you have it, get that right away to um, minimize any damage and help the person to recover. So yeah, it, time is of the essence for sure. And uh, and you mentioned uh, defibrillator or AED, um, automatic external defibrillation. Um, tell us about that. And, you know, we've, we see them at sporting events and we see them in, you know, public places and hospitals at swimming pools, but are they easy to use? Should people be afraid of them? Do you have to be trained in them? So they're, they're very easy to use and you can use them without any training. I, I always encourage people to do at least basic CPR, uh, you know, because it's easy to do and you never know it. It may uh, save a life, of course, but um um, the defibrillators are easy to use. So what they do is, you know, when, when you do CPR, you compress the chest and you try to keep blood flowing to minimize like brain and organ damage. The defibrillator is important because that actually can reset the rhythm back to normal. So when you shock the heart, the hope is that it changes all the electrical cells so they're synchronized again, they're all in the same phase, and that would allow the normal heartbeat to return, which will then allow the heart to start working properly again. So the, the automated defibrillator, um, it's, uh, it's got its own, um, when, when you put, it, 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 the, when you, it's, it's a case, when you open the case, there's pictures in there that show you like how to apply the pads to the chest, one on the front and one on the side, and it tells you like to turn it on. And then it will, it uses the pads to sense what electrical signal that patient has. And then, so it will talk to you in a voice. So it's very easy, you put the pads on, and then just stand back and it will take a second to analyze what it what the signal is doing. Um, and if if there if it's one of these bad arrhythmias that are where it's going really fast, um, the defibrillator will say shock advised. And then it, there's a button that you press that's again very obvious. It's sort of flashing. You press it and it will deliver the shock. Um, and then it usually, many of them also tell you what to do. It will, it will deliver the shock and then tell you to continue CPR and then ask you to check again uh, after a minute or two. Um, if it says, if it's not the dangerously fast rhythm, then it will say no shock indicated continues CPR. So it sort of tells you what to do. Um, they're very easy to use. They're very safe. Um, they usually tell you to stand back, but that's more because when the patient gets shocked, the muscles can twitch sometimes, um, but it doesn't hurt you. You don't get shocked. Um, you know, so it's, it's a very safe device to use and very easy to use. It's very clear instructions designed to be used by somebody who's you know, probably panicking in an emergency, you know, so it's, uh, it's uh, always worth opening it. Don't be afraid. And you mentioned the panicking in an emergency, which I think a lot of people do. I think there's a very small yep. percentage of people who are able to remain calm in an emergency, but I think that is one of the most important aspects of delivering emergency care to somebody is to re- try and remain calm or have the calmest person do it because I, I can imagine, especially with somebody like Ronnie James, people would be freaking out. Um, you know, there's totally. so much anxiety around that. So, so remaining calm if you are in a position where you're going to defibrillate somebody. So, who is at risk of uh, cardiac uh, arrest? Um, you know, the sudden is it somebody who's had a heart attack in the past? It, you know, what if you've had a an infection in your heart in the past or other lifestyle um, conditions like? High blood pressure, diabetes, smoking. <laughs> um, you know, do those do they do those kinds of conditions put people at greater risk for cardiac arrest? 
Yeah, so um, a great, great question. And, and it's, it's important to remember it can happen to anybody. The risk for people who are otherwise in really good health is very, very small. You know, these, these events in athletes like Bronny, they're, they're terrible. They're extremely uncommon, um, you know, and they receive a lot of press and attention because it's such a, such a public figure and, and you know, sports are, are public events. Um, so they, they are rare for people that are otherwise healthy, but they can happen to anyone. So you always want to have, um, you know, appropriate uh, things like an AED and a response plan in place at public facilities. Um, when uh, it is true that when you get other medical issues with your heart or otherwise that can increase your risk. So for older patients, uh, say, um, you know, many of the patients I see, by far the most common cause would be like blockages in the arteries. And so, you know, uh, if you have a history of previous heart attack, if you have, um, you know, blocked arteries, um, if you have risk factors like the ones you mentioned, high blood pressure, smoking, diabetes that are, especially if it's poorly controlled, those all increase your risk for blockages. And so when you put your heart under strain, there's a risk of, you know, going on a rhythm. It's still small, but it's higher than it would be for other people that are that are healthy. Um, so all of the, it's important to do what you can to protect your heart, minimize your risk, and that includes, you know, being heart healthy, medications where necessary, and looking after all of your risk factors. You may have heard that on Thursday, Bronny James, the son of NBA basketball top scorer uh, LeBron James, suffered a cardiac arrest. And my guest is Dr. John Weisler. He is a general cardiologist in private practice and the head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital in the North Shore Heart Center. He also does a lot of screening and work with some of the uh, athletic teams in the British Columbia area. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Weisler. Oh, you're most welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Excellent. So we've gone through some of the risk factors and what it actually means to have a cardiac arrest, but surely somebody who's 18 years old has a, uh, is a rising star, has a great career ahead of him, seemingly healthy. He's got to be worried about his future. What does the future look like for an athlete of his caliber uh, to have suffered a cardiac arrest? And, and what's his risk factors for it happening again? And, and um, you know, how is important, how important is it to find out why this happened? Yeah, so all great questions. And, uh, you know, the last question first, I guess, is it's extremely important. It's hard hard to know. Like, I have no insider knowledge. I just know, like, what's been in the news articles. And so this is all, you know, speculation. And, and of course, I want to be careful to, to note that. So I, I don't know anything special about his details. Um, but when, you know, from what I understand, he's so far made a good recovery. He was only briefly in the intensive care unit. He's awake and alert. So it sounds like he's made a good recovery so far in terms of his general health. Like he hasn't had any significant brain injury or something like that. So the odds of a return to sort of a average normal life sound like they're pretty good. Um, can he play competitive sports again? Um, too early to, to, to tell, you know, because, um, it, you know, it, it no, so far no information has been released as to, to why this happened. Um, you know, there, there were other um, cases where there was a identifiable cause of the cardiac arrest. So we, we spoke before about um, the Buffalo Bill safety, Damar Hamlin, um, where the mechanism of his cardiac arrest was believed to be a traumatic blow to the chest from a tackle. So that, um, assuming nothing else was found, um, you know, that that's one condition that, you know, is unlikely to ever happen again. And so 
he would likely be able to return to sports, which I believe is his plan. Um, there was another um, player uh, who had a cardiac arrest on the court, a basketball player who played for the USC Trojans, and um, he had a cardiac arrest. And um, they, I forget now the, his details, if he had an underlying disease found, but they put a, they implanted a defibrillator in his chest, um, which will monitor for the heart to dangerously go to rhythm. And I believe his plan is to play again, which is controversial whether you can play competitive sports with a defibrillator. There's pros and cons. So the, the answer for Bronny, um, Marine, will depend on what else is found and, you know, what else can be done about it. Um, he'll get a very extensive workup. They usually do an MRI of the heart to look for any subtle structural changes that may have contributed or allowed this to happen. Um, he'll also receive like an evaluation of, you know, his heart's rhythm. Um, and, and they'll do detailed testing on that with an electrical feature. There's um, different tests we do where we infuse different medications and look at the heart rhythm and see what happens to try and unmask rare but potentially very serious rhythm disorders. And it depends if anything is, is found with that. Um, and then returning to play and when can he play, um, still too early to tell. And there's also elements that are like a, a nuance. We used to say that when you have a defibrillator, you shouldn't play sports again. Or if you've had this and you're placed on a medication, you should never play competitive sports because of the risk. But then other people would push back and say, well, if the person is aware and they have a plan to manage it, they're willing to take the risk. Should you should you say no? So should you should you ban them from playing? So uh, it's it's also sort of individual or patient and team specific. So difficult at this point to answer. We don't we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would, but then again, I'm not a top-notch athlete, <laughs> so I don't have to make that sure. decision. Um, injection, yeah, yes, it's a tough decision, very, very difficult decision. There's, you know, you want to follow in your father's footsteps and exactly. uh, literally, and you love the game and you probably always love the game. And, you know, anyway, I, my heart goes out to uh, no pun intended to Bronnie and his family. Uh, ejection fraction is how well your heart is pumping. And, you know, and, and I even have patients who come and they say, well, they had an ejection fraction done and, you know, it's below 40. Um, tell us about uh, ejection fraction, what it means. And if it's lower, 35 or 40%, are you at an increased risk for sudden cardiac arrest? Yeah, so so you can be. So the, the ejection fraction is a, a number that we use in, in cardiology to sort of quantify um, how well your heart is squeezing. So a normal heart, when it squeezes, it doesn't like empty completely. It squeezes about between 55 and 60% of the blood that's inside the heart gets squeezed out with each heartbeat. Uh, so that, that's what your ejection fraction is. It's how much blood your heart pumps with each heartbeat. Normal, again, is sort of between 55 and 60%. Um, people that are highly trained athletes, like Bronnie, sometimes when you look at their ejection fraction, when they're at rest, when they're not exercising, it appears a little bit low, sort of 45 to 50% is not uncommon. We call that athlete's heart, which is normal because the patient is, the player is trained so well that their heart becomes extremely efficient and doesn't need to squeeze very hard at rest to meet their body's needs. Um, when is when is it too low? So sort of 40 to 45% is a common cutoff that we use. Um, the low, the, and, and so if your heart muscle gets weaker, which you know happens sometimes because of a heart attack or if you get a virus that damages the heart, if you get myocarditis or if you get other causes, um, if the heart muscle gets too weak, that does increase your risk of arrhythmia the abnormal or weakened heart muscle doesn't conduct electricity as well as it should. So the risk of 
you know, your heart going out of rhythm increases. And 35% is a cutoff where that risk begins to increase. So above 35% for the ejection fraction, the risk of a dangerous arrhythmia still remains very small. When it gets below that, we start becoming more concerned, the risk increases. So for patients that I see who, you know, older, who may have had a heart attack or some other heart issue, if the heart function is persistently below 35%, we can't increase it with medications, for example, um, then we um, think about implanting a defibrillator to monitor the heart for arrhythmias and to treat, it's an implant, it's like a pacemaker, but a little bit bigger, that, uh, that monitors the heart and then can treat it with a shock if it ever goes dangerously out of rhythm. So 35% or less is one of the features that we look for. Wow, it's amazing the advances that we have made in medicine, uh, especially in terms of devices, um, you know, to keep one's heart going, which is awesome. Uh, I'm sure that's changed your practice quite a bit. But getting back to the basics, how important is quitting smoking, exercising, (laughs) eating a healthy diet, getting good sleep and managing your stress? All all very important. Everything that you've mentioned are big risk factors for developing heart disease. So, yeah, what what can you do to minimize your risk of cardiac arrest? I mean, remember, it's rare. And for people that exercise, if they feel well, you know, generally the benefits of exercise far outweigh, you know, any risk, you know, which is generally small. But it's important to keep your heart as healthy as, as you can. So, Smoking is a huge risk factor. It accelerates damage to the heart muscle. Um, Alcohol in moderation, because alcohol also can irritate the heart and disturb the heart rhythm and and weaken the heart muscle. And then um, look after things like, you know, your fitness, your your weight, um, you know, and things like uh, cholesterol, blood pressure, your your blood sugar, you know, important to, you know, know what what all of those are and, and to, uh, see your doctor occasionally, but consistently to have those checked and have those monitored and, you know, treated if necessary. And, a, you know, a generally healthy diet, low in saturated fats and low in simple sugars is a good place to start for most people if they're not already doing that. Awesome information, Dr. Weisler. Thank you so much for joining the program tonight. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Type 2 diabetes is a disease in which your body cannot make enough insulin. Insulin is the hormone that helps control the amount of glucose or sugar that's in your blood, or it does not properly use the insulin that it makes. Type 2 diabetes is caused by several different risk factors and accounts for 90%, 90% of diabetes cases in Canada. People over the age of 40 with a parent or sibling with diabetes are at higher risk of having type 2. Your ethnic background is also a factor. It's estimated that 11.7 million Canadians, or one-third of our population, live with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, and nearly half, 48%, are 65 years of age and older. A diabetes diagnosis, of course, can be very scary, and there are many myths and stigmas that accompany this diagnosis. Living her best life with type 2 diabetes is my next guest, Monique Laframboise. She's calling in from Canada. Good evening, Monique. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Yourself? I'm very well. Thank you so much. As I understand it, you were diagnosed with diabetes at the age of 48. And I can imagine that must have come as a shock to you. What was that like? Um, Yes, I remember turning uh, 48 in May and I was diagnosed in August. And it was a shock uh, to me when I heard about this and I didn't know how to deal with it, like what to do about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course, it's my doctor 
to my doctor that had uh, made like the routine medical test, you know, for, uh, you know, cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera. And then we discovered I had a type 2 a diabetes. So you were at risk because you were over the age of 40. People don't think of 48 as being the typical age that somebody would be at risk for diabetes type 2. Did you have any parents or siblings that also had diabetes? Uh, yes, my parents had uh, diabetes. Um, but, I mean, usually usually it starts later in life, like after, like in your late 60s, 70s, you know, and that's what had happened with my parents. But because my doctor explained to me, because of that, it's genetic, so that's why I got it a bit uh, younger and, now, you know, say in 65 or up. Right, right. We think of um, people maybe who have a poor diet or overweight or obese because those things can be associated with an increased risk of diabetes type 2. Did you have any of those risk factors? Um, yes, I had, I, if I remember well, I had weight to lose, that's for sure. And uh, diet and stress has, um, you know, something to do with that, too. And I was working at the time as well. Uh -huh. So, um, and I do have uh, one sibling. Uh, one of my brothers has diabetes, and my nephew has type 1 diabetes. Wow. He was, uh, he was diagnosed at age 7. So that's a different type, though. <laughs> that That <laughs> is. That's for, that's for another segment, another show. <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah. May I ask you, how much weight did you have to lose? What are we talking here? Oh, my God. Um, that's a long time ago now, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I would say maybe I had 15 pounds, 20 pounds. I, I don't really remember. Yeah. yeah. Let's say. But you, yeah, the, yeah. If you have a, you know, a good weight for your height and that, I guess that's the, uh, the way to, uh, to look at it, you know? Right. But it wasn't 50 or 100 pounds that you had to lose. So, you know, a lot of people no. are walking around probably needing to lose 15 to 20 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's about what I had to lose. I would say yeah. 20 maybe. And you mentioned you had stress. We all have stress in our lives. So were you having difficulty managing the stress? Was the stress around work? You don't have to get into the personal aspect of it. Um, no, um, yeah, well, well, like uh, they, they, they had just uh, downsized where I was working, so I was one, one of the persons to be let go. <laughs> and I, when mm. I was uh, diagnosed, actually, I was on a contract. I went back to the same company that had just let me go. So that, that was like a stressful time, you know, for right. me because I had to find a job. Like at 48, I was too young to retire, right? So, so it was a stressful time for me, yeah. Of course. And at 48, I mean, especially for women, they might be thinking, am I ever going to work again? Who's going to hire me? They want to hire the 30-year-olds, you know, or the less expensive mm -hmm. ones right out of university. So I would imagine a lot was going on in your life at the time. You've been living this, with this for a long time now. And you, I understand your community, air quotes, helped you move forward. How did your community help you move forward? Actually, um, um, I was helped by my sister because she, she knew about diabetes because of her son who's the diabetic, right, the type 1 diabetic. So she was helping me out with that too. And, of course, my doctor, my doctor, my family doctor was uh, really good at, uh, you know, advising me. But um, what I would suggest is, like, if you're newly diagnosed with diabetes too, I think it's uh, important to have, um, you know, somebody who, who um, looks after you, like your, your doctor, of course. But, you, you know, if you can find um, 
an organization within your city that you know you can meet up with people and uh, discuss the problem because it, it's um, especially twenty some years ago nobody nobody knew much about type two diabetes so it was really um, hard for me to find information on on the subject you know and and of course we didn't have online like webs and websites and stuff like that either right so it was a whole new um, environment at the time. You know, for that. And did you have to change your diet at the time? Did you know that much? Um, with type two diabetes, it's not changing your diet as much as eating well, like eating according to the Canadian uh, guide. You know, for uh, nutrition and uh, stuff like that. And of course, it's your portion control that you have to watch when you're uh, type two diabetic. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, I, I like rice, let's say, for example. So I'd like to have a cup and a half of rice, but I should only have half a cup of rice. <laughs> you know, <Right>. like, so, <laughs> so that's I, an I example. Just, I just cut rice right out of my life. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I cannot eat, I well, cannot eat it, as I'll eat all of it. I'll eat the whole pot. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah um, I know. And, and it's, not, it's not only rice, of course. It's any carbs, eh? Like the carb, right. carbohydrates, you know? So that's what you have to watch. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and those are the with, you know. That's right, and those are the things we reach for when we're stressed or when we're hungry. They're easy. They're fast. They're available. They're exactly. Cheap. Yeah, yes, exactly. and they're terrible yeah. for us. Um, but you also do urban polling. I was gifted urban polls, and uh, you know when I remember to take them on my walk, I do. I do love it because it does increase your workout um, a bit. Mm-hmm. So exactly. tell me a little bit about your urban polling with your sister. Uh, I've been doing that for, um, if I'm if I'm right, it's eight years that I started urban polling with uh, my sister because Rachel, her name is Rachel. She was an instructor, um, so um, so yeah, I, I was walking two three times a week. Uh, you know, sometimes we walk five six k each time, so it gives a good workout. And like you say, it exercises your whole body, right? Your upper body, your legs, you know, and it burns calories, obviously, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I really enjoy it. Like, I, I think it's one uh, good way of exercising. And, of course, if you fall, if you do the technique uh, okay, well, it, it's more beneficial, too. Now, Monique, thank you so much for sharing your story and so many of the personal aspects and de-stigmatizing and, you know, um, dispelling some of the myths around it. But I, I have to ask you, at the time you said you had an extra 15 to 20 pounds on you, um, did you manage to lose the weight at the time? Did uh, your changing your nutritional habits um, lead to reduction in weight? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't remember how much uh, weight I had to lose at the time, but um, but I must have lost a little bit, like maybe 10, 15 pounds out of the whatever I had to lose. <laughs> and, right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and... Because I don't really remember that's a long time ago. Eh? It's like Monique, thank you so much for staying on the line with me and talking about this very important subject, which affects 11.7 million Canadians, or one third of our population, live with prediabetes or diabetes type two, and nearly half, 48%, are 65 years of age and older. There are so many myths and stigmas, and we are helping, and Monique is in particular, helping to destigmatize some of this and give us the straight goods on living a great life with diabetes type 2. She was diagnosed with diabetes at the age of 48. Thanks for staying on the line, Monique. I, I want to get into blood sugars. 
So obviously your blood sugar must have been high during a routine uh, exam, as you mentioned. Um, what is what have your blood sugars been like? You said you are off of insulin or you don't need to take insulin at this stage. And we don't typically think of type 2 diabetes, people who are living with that requiring insulin, but that's not always the case. So tell me, are your blood sugars stable? Okay, what happens with the diabetes type 2? It's a progressive uh, disease. So with time, it could, it could um, uh, you know, get to a point where you do have, you do need insulin. So it depends on your diet, your exercise. It depends on a lot of things, you know. But just to give you an example, I was uh, checked um, a couple of weeks ago for my blood sugar. And your blood sugar should be at 7.0 or lower. And my blood sugar was at 9.8, which is considered a bit higher than what my doctor would like, you know what I mean? So, right. but I mean, I, I've heard of people uh, that have uh, 24 points uh, with their sugar, so that's extreme. That's dangerous at a point of being dangerous. So at that point, like if people go up uh, con cons consistently high in blood sugars, then they would be put on insulin. To, I see. Know, to help, yeah. So nine point eight is not that high, but if 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 it's persistently at that point, then I might have to go on insulin myself later. Now, was that a fasting glucose or was that an HGA1C, which is over three, an average over three months? It's the A1C, but it's uh, you're mm -hmm. fasting when you go for that blood test. Right. And do you use continuous glucose monitoring? Uh, I, I've been bad for that, to be honest with you. I don't, um, um, I don't do it constantly, but I do check my blood sugars at home. Yeah, I have the mm -hmm. monitor, so yes, mm -hmm. I do. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's. I imagine it's not easy to keep up with all this and and live life and exercise and be social and, um, you know, uh, busy in life and and to take care of your, you know, pay attention to all the different aspects of diabetes. But one resource, then, and there have been a few apparently, but one of them is diabetescarecommunity.ca, which has helped you. And that's an awesome online uh, resource, which reviews diabetes prevention, type one diabetes, type two diabetes, and also gestational diabetes, which occurs to uh, some people when they are pregnant. There's also a lot of different feature articles um, just about the relationship between stroke and diabetes and diabetes support, coping with stress, different ideas that might work. How has this diabetes care community uh, helped you? Um, I usually go online and um, another one that I've been uh, mostly dealing with is Diabetes Canada. So mm -hmm. um, again, uh, online, I've attended um, online conferences with Diabetes Canada. And, um, you know, I, I participated in uh, discussion groups, you know, about uh, diabetes and my experience mm -hmm. and my, you know, how I feel about the, the, that. Um, so Diabetes Care Community as well as Diabetes Canada are two great uh, online websites that you uh, should refer to if you have diabetes, uh, either probably type 1 or type 2. It doesn't matter. They give good advice. And uh, recipes, and you know, it's uh, it's really good to uh, to access those two uh, organizations. Also, there's um, Hypo Info Canada. That's uh, that's for uh, if if you have um, uh, problems like you know lower sugar, because 
As it, especially if you're on insulin, your blood sugars can go really low, and that's that's a dangerous point as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so people should uh, go to that site as well to learn more about, uh, you know, low blood sugars type thing. So it, you know, and it's so important. It it's well, called the hypoglycemia. <laughs> yes. Yes, mm-hmm. when your blood sugar drops, and that can happen, and you're more at risk for that if you're on insulin, absolutely correct. You know, these days, it's not only difficult to get an appointment with a physician or a healthcare provider, but you have 10 minutes, it seems, and you're allowed to cover one subject. And when you live with diabetes or, you know, you're fighting against it, there's so much information that is required. Um, to help people with diabetes live healthy lives while, you know, these organizations are working to find a cure. And so, you know, you can't talk to your doctor sometimes about if you have a family history and you have questions about assessing your risk or calculating body mass index or different resources or, you know, attending classes. This is one thing that the diabetescanada.ca offers is virtual diabetes classes where a registered nurse and registered dietitian actually educate you about things like um, exercise and how that can lower your blood sugar or different, as you mentioned, different recipes. And do you go online and um, take some of the recipes and and try them out? Um, For the recipes, um, I'm pretty... uh... Yeah, yeah, it's nice to have the recipes. There's also recipe books for diabetes as well. Um, I like to go online just to to attend conferences, like you just mentioned, the ones, um, you know, with uh, nurses that are um, uh, more knowledgeable about the diabetes. Um, And and I've dealt with that too online with uh, Diabetes Canada, and it's great because um, it's good for encouragement, like, you know, to encourage you. If you're doing well, of course, they'll let you know, and... And it encourages uh, you to keep going, like right, you keep absolutely. doing what you're doing right to, to, you know. And actually, when I did participate, um, one of the nurses, her name was Gail, she was surprised that after 20 years, let's say, of diabetes, that I still wasn't on insulin. So she told me I was doing something right. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> that was good we... to know. Yeah, that Absolutely. Was and we yeah. all need that affirmation, you know, we need that, you know, cheerleader that says you're doing something right, you're doing it right, keep going, good for you, um, mm-hmm. you know, and there's so many different um, options like, on this diabetescarecommunity.ca. One thing is, I don't think people realize the impact of carbohydrate uh, foods on their blood sugars. And so one of the articles is carbohydrate con- carbohydrate content of foods. And there's a printable chart. Um, mm-hmm. There's also pre-diabetes menu plans, which is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. this is not just for people with diabetes type two who've already been diagnosed. It's people who want to prevent it. People who have decided that they don't want to get diabetes type two. They don't want to add another medication to their armamentarium, you know, their, um, uh, whatever, the trunk of uh, medications. And polypharmacy is mm-hmm. a big issue in, mm-hmm. um, for, especially for older people. As people age, they need antihypertensives, oftentimes antidepressants. Now they're needing um, medications for their blood sugars uh, to lower their blood sugars. So, and, and yeah, also- if, you you're, um, if you're, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, I was going to say if you're a type 2 diabetic, uh, cholesterol and um, hypertension are usually- um, you know, comes along, let's say, with the, the blood sugar 
stuff. So mm-hmm. that's one thing you have. So if you exercise, like in my case, I don't have any hypertension. I don't have uh, high cholesterol. So at least I got two out of three. That's done. You know what I mean? That I don't have to right. worry about. But it's right. important to, to know that you can have hypertension and uh, high cholesterol with diabetes too. And, and I think we associate stroke with that, but we don't associate diabetes with it. People with diabetes are two to four times as likely to have a stroke compared to those without. And they're also at higher risk of having a stroke earlier. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, there's yes. just so much that is related to uh, diabetes. Monique, what would you say to somebody out there who um, was pre-diabetic or living with diabetes type 2? When you look at it um, in a condensed form, like we just talked about, it, it looks very scary, you know, to be diabetic too. But if if you eat well, you exercise, you keep keep in line with your family doctor to make sure everything is okay, you know, and um, uh, and you take care of your physical and mental, uh, uh, you know, physical and mental state. Um, you know, it's not that bad. Like, you know, it's just, you, you have to, I guess with time too, you just learn how to live with it and you don't really pay great attention to it. But at the beginning, I would suggest that people get online with Diabetes Canada, Diabetes Care Community, um, you know, and uh, learn more about it. Uh, and uh, and it's going to help them to cope with it too. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on the program. It was my pleasure to talk about it. I want to talk to you a little bit about your immune system and some of the things that impact your immune system or things that may suppress your immune system, making it harder to fight infection. So first of all, your immune system is a fabulous orchestra, a collaboration between cells and proteins that work together to provide defense against infection. The cells and proteins do not form a single organ like your bladder or your liver or your heart. Rather, the immune system is dispersed throughout your entire body so that it can provide rapid responses to infections. For example, the cells travel through the bloodstream or in specialized vessels called lymphatics. Lymph nodes and the spleen provide structures that facilitate cell-to-cell communication. And the proteins may be made by immune cells or other organs like the liver. So the major organs of the immune system include the thymus, and that's an organ located in the upper chest where T cells mature. And these T cells leave the bone marrow and find their way to the thymus where they are then educated to become more mature T cells and they're able to fight infection a little bit better. The liver is the major organ that is responsible for producing proteins of the complement system. It also contains large numbers of phagocytic cells, which is a specific type of white cell, white blood cell that ingests bacteria in the blood as it passes through the liver. Then you have your bone marrow and that's the location where all the cells of the immune system begin their development from stem cells. The tonsils are collections of lymphocytes in your throat and lymph nodes are collections of B cells and T cells. I'm sure you've heard those about those cells, especially during the fight against COVID-19. The cells congregate in lymph nodes to communicate with each other and lymph nodes can become swollen when they're fighting an infection. You probably have felt that lymph nodes are all over your body, but you may have felt lymph nodes below your ear or at the back of your neck when you have maybe a sore throat or an upper respiratory 
tract infection. The spleen is a collection of B cells, T cells, and monocytes, and it filters the blood and provides a site for invaders or the germs and the cells of the immune system to interact. And of course, the blood is contained within your circulatory system. It carries cells and proteins of the immune system from one part of the body to another. So you can see where this is a concerted effort for all of these organs to work together to help you to fight infection. Well, guess what? There are some things that may suppress your immune system. You want your immune system working incredibly well, like a well-oiled machine, like a car that's in tip-top shape. But one of the things that may impact your ability to fight infection or something that will suppress your immune system is lack of sleep. Lack of sleep makes you more vulnerable to catching viruses or germs. And the other thing is, if you're sleep deprived, it may take you a bit longer to get better because your body can't make as many of the infection fighting cells and proteins called antibodies that help defend against illness. So the message there, get enough sleep. Anxiety. I was surprised to see this in a way. Stress and worry are not great germ fighters. Even just having anxious thoughts can weaken your immune system response in as little as 30 minutes. And of course, constant stress takes a much bigger toll and makes it very hard to fend off anything like herpes, shingles, the flu, and other viruses that you may contract. It's important to get treatment for your anxiety if you are experiencing that. Another one is low vitamin D. I take 4,000 international units of vitamin D each day. You need it for strong bones and healthy blood cells, but it also helps to boost your immune system. There are some foods you can get it in. Eggs, one of my favorite foods. Fatty fish, do enjoy fatty fish as well, and also fortified foods like milk and cereal. That's why, you know, even giving your kids cereal is a good, you know, nutritious meal. Uh, that's better than chips, for example. <laughs> um, sunlight is, of course, another key source, and it's important to get sunlight in the summer, just five to 15 minutes of rays on your hands, face, and arms. Two to three times a week is usually enough, and, and in the wintertime, you might notice that you do need a little bit more. Getting to medications, lots of people take medications for many different things, but there are particular medications that may suppress your immune system. A lot of people have been suffering with allergies, and so some of the antihistamines may suppress your immune system. Some people uh, have arthritis and may, may need to take anti-inflammatory medications, or if you have lupus, irritable bowel syn syndrome. And of course, if you've had an organ transplant, you might need to take medications that will weaken your immune system. There are many other medications like corticosteroids, for example. Sometimes people with asthma need to take prednisone or sometimes um, some of the other autoimmune diseases. Prednisone is a common medication that is prescribed. TNF inhibitors for inflammation and chemotherapy for cancer as well. And so those medications are also likely to suppress your immune system. So it's very important that you speak to your doctor before you adjust any prescription medication, anyone at all. But just keep in mind that those medications may in fact suppress your immune system. So there may be some other things that you'll need to do, like get outside a little bit more or improve the nutrition in your diet. Speaking of nutrition, let's talk about too, fruit, too few fruits and veggies. Say that three times fast. These 
foods, and you're not, you need about three to five a day of each, they help your body make more of the white blood cells that you need to fight off infection. So a healthy diet cannot be overstated. It's very, very important. Important to include fresh produce and nuts and seeds in your diet because they contain a lot of zinc, beta carotene, vitamins A, C, and E, and other nutrients that you need for a healthy body. And plant-based foods also help to fill you up with fiber. And that helps to lower your body fat percentage, which can strengthen your immune system. You know, there's lots of plant-based foods these days. There are even cheeses that I notice that are plant-based, and I think they taste pretty good. So, you know, explore a little bit. Try a few things that are outside of your comfort zone. Um, this one is another one <laughs> that, uh, you know, a lot of people do, a lot of people engage in this activity, but they don't realize the negative impact it can have on your health. I am talking about marijuana. Mary Jane, for some of you out there, smoke from pot can inflame your lungs, especially if you, you use it regularly. And if you use it regularly, you may have the exact same type of breathing problems that you can get from nicotine cigarettes. And so you might be coughing up colored mucus and have a higher chance of lung infections. The other thing is marijuana can lead to anxiety for a lot of people. And of course, we know that anxiety actually um, leads to a suppression of the immune system. So one thing can affect another. You know, you have to remember that, that it's not just about one change in your life, but oftentimes it's a number of them. But you know what, if it's just one you can do, that's enough. Maybe in a couple of weeks, add a couple of more changes to your life. And you know what? It's worth it when you feel well and have lots of energy, you're productive and you're just feeling great. Maybe you're a bit more optimistic. Your mood is better. Who knows what the benefits can be for you? The other thing, and we do are, we're very guilty of this, a high fat diet, especially in this society, because oils can hinder germ fighting white blood cells. And if you consume a high fat diet over time, you can upset the balance of the bacteria in your gut. And that helps immune response when you have a good balance of bacteria in your gut. So you want to look for low fat dairy with no added sugar and lean protein. You want to eat things like turkey and chicken or lean cuts of beef. Have any visible fat cut off. You want to try seafood as well. I know a lot of people don't love seafood. Some people are allergic to it. So but you know what? There are so many options that you can have to help with your germ fighting ability, especially through your diet. And, you know, additionally, I just wanted to mention that being obese, so overweight is kind of over a BMI of over 25, but, um, you know, 30 and above is, is obese. Um, and being obese seems to make you more likely to get the flu and other infections like pneumonia. So, you know, I mean, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if you're obese, you're going to get all of these uh, infections. I, I have to say, whenever I flew on a plane pre-pandemic, I would get some sort of a virus. And now I wear a mask all the time. And it's not necessarily just for COVID-19, although I don't want to get it. Um, but I don't want to get a flu or upper respiratory tract infection or anything else. So I, I think I mentioned before that uh, getting outside sunlight can energize those special cells in your immune system that are called T cells. And T cells help to fight infection. But bringing outside brings other benefits too. And, you know, walking in nature, doctors are prescribing walking in nature these days because walking in the woods or many of the plants in the woods when you're walking make phytonicides um, and other substances that you breathe in that may help to boost, bolster 
your immune function. So get outside, very, very important. And of course, cut down on those cigarettes, chewing tobacco, cigars, any other source that can weaken your body's ability to fight germs. And you know what? Vaping counts too. It's not just the nicotine because there's other chemicals in those e-liquids that seem to suppress your immune response, especially when you inhale them through vaping. And I know it's summer and I know you're probably kicking back, enjoying a few drinks, cocktails, beers, whatever your choice, but just overdoing it once slows your body's ability to fight germs for up to 24 hours. So over time, drinking too much blunts your body's ability to repair itself. And that might be why you're more likely to get illnesses like liver disease, pneumonia, tuberculosis and and other cancers. And and alcohol is certainly related to an increased risk of cancer. So try to keep it to zero if you can. (laughs) Otherwise, maybe one drink or two. And something that we've talked about on this show, but you you don't think of it in terms of health all the time is, is grief. There's some evidence that demonstrates that sorrow, especially if it lasts a long time, may depress your body's immunity. And that effect can linger for six months, but may go on longer if your grief is deep or it doesn't ease up at all. So once again, important to talk to your doctor or mental health professional if you need help with loss or a traumatic event. So very, very important. And of course, exercise, regular aerobic exercise helps your body fight illness caused by viruses and bacteria. And that is because it helps the body get the, uh, helps the blood get around the body more efficiently. And that means more germ fighting substances get where they need to go and fight those infections. There's so much research being done on exactly how exercise helps to boost your immune system. And then something else, you know, a lot of people, especially in the longer term relationships, they might, you know, forget about intimacy, but weekly intimacy seems to help boost your immune system compared to those who have it less often. So that's because sex raises a level of germ fighting substance called immunoglobulin A or IgA, but more may not always be better. Couples who had sex more than twice a week had lower levels of IgA than those who had no sex at all. So a couple of times a week, being intimate, having that bond, that can boost your immune system. Anyway, just something to think about. It's never too late to change your life. You can start now, make a couple of changes, and just think about it. And you know what? The benefit is you will feel better, and so will I. Stroke is something you don't want to have, but you might want to live two decades longer. And if so, you may want to listen in and adopt these eight healthy habits. This study was done at Carl University College of Medicine by a rising star medical student named Juan Maitid Win. After careful review of data from over 700,000 U.S. veterans, that's a very robust study. So what are the eight healthy habits to increase longevity? Well, be free from opioid addiction. Now we saw a rise in opioid addiction over the pandemic and it is a crisis in this country. And so dealing with your opioid addiction is associated with living longer. It's not just one of these habits to adopt, it's all of them. But you know what, even if you do just adopt one or two or three, you are likely to live longer and live a little bit better. Also, not smoking is associated with living longer as is managing stress, following a good diet. And you know, I just want to go back to stress for a second. We all have stress in our lives, but you've got to manage it. Are you one of those people that reacts instead of responds to problems? You might reconsider and 
you know, try and approach issues in a calm manner. As I mentioned, following a good diet, I have beaten that drum on this show many, many times. Good idea to have fruits and veggies in your refrigerator, not go for the carbs, not go for those quick fixes, not let yourself get too hungry. So follow a good, healthy, nutritious diet. You don't want to regularly be binge drinking either. That's associated with cognitive decline and falls and fractures, also memory issues and loss of productivity. So you want to stop regularly binge drinking. I know it's a tough time because it's summer and you're out there on your boats and you're heading to the beach and you might be enjoying a couple of cold ones or some lovely cocktails, uh, if you will, if that, uh, if you choose to do so. Um, also good sleep hygiene, good idea to get into bed, use your bedroom for intimacy and sleep only no computers, screens, phones. We're addicted to those as well. So good sleep hygiene, go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time every single day. Um, you know, if you have a sleep issue, go and get help for that. Talk to your doctor. That's a great first step. You also want to have positive social relations, which is why I was so excited to see this particular group of senior guys playing hockey, Canada's favorite pastime down in, in California. And, you know, they make jokes about, um, you know, their hips, their replacement hips and their heart valves and their, uh, defibrillators. And, but you know what, they're in their, they're in their eighties and nineties, some of them, and they're still playing hockey and they have a tournament each July. Uh, and it's just awesome because also physical exercise is critical as well as the eighth step. So just to review them quickly, opioid addiction, not smoking, managing stress, following a good diet, not regularly binge drinking, good sleep hygiene, and having positive social relations and physical exercise. And that's why I love that little story about the, um, the hockey players that, you know what, they decided even with their fake knees, spinal cord stimulators, 25 surgeries, and, and one guy even joked a lobotomy, they are playing hockey. Their team is known as the Oregon Old Growth, and they have joined dozens of others from around North America to compete this month at the Snoopy Senior Hockey Tournament in Santa Rosa, California. And I just think that is awesome. You know what, you don't get old uh, because you quit. How does that, you, you don't quit because you get old. Sorry. You get old because you quit. So stay with the game. Social relations, really important. Keep going. You know, there's nothing that you can't do. You know, you may not be able to do it the way you did as a teenager, as a college grad or whatever, but you know what? Stay in the game. That's all I can say. I exercise daily three or four times, especially in the summertime. Everything from, well, in the summer, everything from paddleboarding to swimming to hiking to playing tennis, winter, skiing, snowboarding, uh, hiking, uh, whatever I can. I love the great outdoors. And hopefully many of you are enjoying the summer weather. Remember that the earth is getting warmer and some places are seeing extremely high temperatures and extreme heat may impact your heart health, brain, kidneys, lungs, skin especially if you have underlying medical conditions. So stay cool, check on the seniors who can be more vulnerable in these weather conditions because they may have uh, underlying medical conditions and also stay hydrated. So if you start to feel clammy, disoriented, overly thirsty, and if your sweat isn't actually cooling your body down, you may be entering a danger zone. So stay indoors, get into air conditioning if you can. And if things get really bad, the best way to cool down is to get into cold water. That means plunging yourself into an icy bath, standing under the cold shower, if you, uh, if you will, and, um, or soaking towels and wrapping them around your body as well. 
cool down as best as you can. Well, that's a wrap for the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. But I want to leave you with this. A lot has been said about Sinead O'Connor. It was a tremendous loss this week. But I wanted to share with you these most profound words that I read on Instagram on how she changed the world for so many women. So many of us as young women who first heard her howls knew she spoke for us, expressed what was in our souls for generations. She was so brave, so wild, so utterly untamed. Let her be our wild, untamed saint. Let her help us take the tape off of our hearts and mouths. Let us always be too loud, too much, too loving, too fierce, all of it in her honor. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.